Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 10th, 2019, and this is episode 133. Politicos is the BC Politics Podcast. Tell us what you think of the show by leaving us a review or get at us on social media. Most importantly, help us build the show by throwing us a couple dollars a month at patreon.com slash I'm Scott Glenboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the SNC story continues to drag on week after week after week after week. So we'll keep talking about it. And we ask experts at a panel if social media is bad. We don't know yet because the panel's tomorrow night. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Before we begin, we got some feedback from Renil Prasad, longtime listener and supporter of the show, and past guest. He wanted to answer that question that I kind of glossed over of why Daryl Plekis wasn't sitting in the Committee of the Whole meeting the other day when there was that tie vote, that consequential tie vote that we talked about that the Liberals ultimately won. Renil writes, the committee was, that was meeting at the time was the Committee of the Whole, of which all MLAs are part of. The Speaker, Daryl Plekis, wasn't chairing the procedures due to an ancient precedent from the UK House of Commons. The committee would often meet in secret so they could consider legislation line by line without the presence of royal officers and an official record of the proceeding. Of course, now we have Hansard, so there is an official record. Tradition continues. The speaker was seen to be partial to the interests of the crown, often due to the fact that many speakers were executed by the monarch for the work that parliament was doing. Wow, Daryl Fletcher should be happy he was just kicked out of his party. As such, the speaker was relieved of their duties and excluded from the chamber while someone else would take their place. So that's why a deputy speaker was in place rather than Daryl Plekis, because otherwise he might tell the Queen what they were up to. If you have other feedback or interesting historical facts that you think we glossed over, you can email us at podcast at And for our patrons, on this upcoming Tuesday, April 16th, we'll be hosting an Alberta Elections Results Watching Party. So go to patreon.com slash to find out the when and where. We'll be there with all the Cambi Report patrons and, as well. If you're not a patron but want to come out to this, you should, well, become a patron and you can find out where we're hosting our event. Patreon.com slash First up, you can't criticize SNC. Sheer was really mean to Justin Trudeau. Didn't you know that? So mean that Trudeau had to draw a line in the sand and tell him those comments you made in your speech on March 29th, they were libelous. They're beyond the pale of fair debate, and they injured Justin Trudeau's capacity to be Prime Minister of Canada. Now, it wasn't Justin Trudeau's alleged behavior in the that Jody Wilson-Raybould suggests where he pressured her. It's what Andrew Scheer said on March 29th, which apparently went beyond the pale. And so Scheer's being sued by libel by the Prime Minister. Or at least threatening to be sued. And we found this out on Sunday when... Sheer held a big press conference and announced to everyone that, oh, hey, the prime minister's threatening to sue me. Uh, but a week before that, he'd gotten a letter from the prime minister's lawyer outlining everything you just said and a whole bunch more, because lawyers are wordy. And Sheer, I don't think, could have been happier. Yeah, his response has been, bring it on. I would love to talk about this in court, because then we can actually bring some facts into this and force you, Justin Trudeau, to speak to this issue under oath or under requirement that you be honest and not just keep saying jobs. So yeah, not the brightest strategic move for Trudeau. No, no, it's it's getting to this point where it's almost a running joke that Trudeau makes the worst possible decisions on how to handle the scandal and threatening to sue the leader of the opposition is about as bad a mistake as you can make on this. There is no upside for Trudeau at all. A part of me sort of gets the motivation in an extreme case. Shear's comments have been more grandiose than, say, Jugmeet Singh's or Elizabeth May's or others. I don't think it's worth going to a libel suit over. But maybe this is Trudeau's way of saying, we used to have rational, reasoned, moderate debate in Canada. 
And today's conservatives are just going over the top. They're siding with Faith Goldies and the white nationalists over here, and they're screaming bloody murder over there, and they're calling me a traitor to this country. Like, it's it's got to stop somewhere. But he's not suing them over amplifying Faith Goldie. Well, that's he's, not a crime, directly. <laughs> he, he's suing them over uh, what Andrew Shear said in relation to a serious scandal Trudeau's embroiled in. Like I said, that's kind of the best case defense I can give for Trudeau, and even there I'm struggling. This is one of those things where it just draws more attention to the controversy. It's the Streisand effect kind of thing, where sometimes you have to let the shitty thing be out there because if you sue it, everyone will know that that thing is out there and get even more aggrieved by it, and you look like you're trying to censor something. Yeah, and that's what makes this such a baffling decision, is that why would you want to drag out the stand? Like, I remember back when the budget was being talked about, way back when, which feels like a year ago now, the big question was, was Trudeau going to change the channel? Everyone agreed that he needed to change the channel. And this is turning back to the original channel, which does not help him at all. And then there's the, okay, you're looking like you're using the courts to try and silence your critics, which is never a good look for the prime minister. Well, and because of that, specific thing that you shouldn't be able to silence your critics, particularly if you're a big, powerful person like the Prime Minister of Canada. Ontario has an anti-slap law, like BC just brought in. In fact, BC's was modeled on Ontario's because it was widely seen as one of the best ways you could do it in Canada. And so I struggle to see how, if this even goes to trial, and if Trudeau actually follows through on his threat, how a court wouldn't say, no, it's actually in the public interest for this to be hashed out in public rather than in a courtroom. Like, Well, I think that would be, they wouldn't say that because Shear would actually have to call for that, to, you know, file mm. the motion to bring in the anti-slap legislation. And he has no incentive to do it because, like we said, this will just drag out. It turns the, what, if Trudeau had handled it properly, should have been like a week or two long scandal into something that would stretch to the election probably. Plus, they'd get discovery, so they could actually peer inside a bunch of the decisions that were being made there, potentially, and, like, bring up a lot of stuff that Trudeau probably doesn't want to expose to the public's attention. Yeah, all-around bad decision by the Prime Minister. It makes Sheer look like the underdog as well, which, going into an election where you're now looking like an injured leader and you've now, like, given your opponent this gift of you're the one everyone should fear and feel sorry for almost and come around to. It's, but it's not unprecedented. There was a CBC article I came across that did point out a couple other times prime ministers have tried to sue their critics or at least threatened to. Stephen Harper, about a decade ago, threatened to sue the Liberal Party of Canada for $3.5 million for headlines about when the Conservatives allegedly tried to bribe independent MP Chuck Cadman to get his cooperation to bring down the Martin government. They claimed Harper knew about this and the liberals were trying to smear Harper with this. Harper didn't follow through with the lawsuit because libel lawsuits are really hard to win, especially when you're the prime minister. And 20 years ago in 1998, Jean Chrétien apparently threatened to sue the Reform Party leader Preston Manning for alleging that Chrétien had sold a Senate seat to a longtime friend back when the Liberals just appointed their longtime friends to the Senate and didn't necessarily tie it to donations. Chrétien as well did not follow through with his lawsuit and only threatened Preston Manning. And there's also precedent at the provincial level too. Uh, Kathleen Wynne filed a libel lawsuit against Patrick Brown when uh, Patrick Brown said that the Premier was standing trial over the Sudbury by-election scandal. So, yeah, that did not help her chances of re-election at all. I mean, it didn't help, turns in the long run, didn't help Brown either. But, yeah, there's more recent precedent, too, at lower levels of government on this. But none of them have really seemed to be, you know, stunning examples of political success. Yeah, even if Shear's specific comments did cross a line, a libel lawsuit from the prime minister against the leader of the opposition is just not going to help. Well, I think there was something a little more fundamental that, which is... Yeah, you can get into libelous territory, but, you know, politicians saying nasty things about each other 
and accusing each other of stuff is kind of a integral part of politics. And I'm not sure the public is necessarily going to go along with bringing the courts into it. Yeah. If you don't like what people are saying and the way they're saying it, don't vote for them. Free speech. But where Justin Trudeau is suing Andrew Scheer, he's being accused of illegal wrongdoing by one of the MPs he just kicked out of his caucus. Dr. Jane Philpott has now raised a point of privilege in the House of Commons, alleging that Trudeau violated the Reform Act, which is something we sort of alluded to last week. Yeah, we talked about it briefly. Basically, this was a law that was passed near the end of the Harper government. It was a private member's bill by Michael Chong that was, in theory, going to kind of reform how Parliament worked and kind of rebalance power a bit from the very leader-centric model that we currently have to something that more represents the other Westminster democracies. It ended up, I think, failing once and finally passed in a watered-down version. Part of that watering down was that caucuses were required to vote at the start of a parliament on whether or not a bunch of the provisions would apply to them, including the provision that requires a caucus vote to kick any member out of caucus. And the Liberals didn't do that vote at the start and then didn't take a vote to kick Dr. Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould out. So the Liberals are alleging that they did take that vote and that they did record it as they were supposed to, just everyone forgot or something. It's unclear. The dog ate the uh, voting record? Yeah. They are saying that they did have that vote, so I'll get that in there. But, yeah, like you said. I I seem to recall stories at the time... Shortly after the election, when the new parliament was seated, that only the conservatives actually followed through and did the vote. I mean, I the, could... the, the NDP came, fits that like a year later, I think. But in 2015, I think only the conservatives actually followed the new law on that one. But the question is now before the speaker himself, Jeff Reagan, has to decide whether this rule was broken. This got constitutional and parliamentary experts up in arms because they're not clear if it's up to the Speaker to interpret the Parliament of Canada Act, which these rules are in, as opposed to just how MPs agree to govern themselves through standing orders and other things like that. Like, this gets really wonky. Yeah, it's complicated. Like, courts really don't like treading on Parliament's toes in terms of how Parliament runs its own business. So there's not much of a remedy through that. Then there's the question of whether the Speaker actually has the power and mandate to interpret laws like a judge. So it gets complicated. And then there's also the question of, does it become a committee thing? Well, that doesn't really help because the liberals control all the committees. Plus the speaker. I mean, it's supposedly a nonpartisan, but he is a liberal after all. So like that might not even really be that great a uh, remedy. Yeah. One other person who's decided that this is something to pay attention to is former... NDP MP and now CCF MP, Aaron Weir, who's like, hey, what about me? He's almost saying me too, but thankfully he didn't use those words. He was kicked out of the NDP following a number of allegations around his behavior to women that he worked with or was in the room with. And he decided to list himself as CCF and now, I guess, is also crying foul that he should be entitled to the same remedy that Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould get, if any, which is a way for him to get a news story out of this. Yeah, I mean, he has the same problems. So there isn't really a path to relief on this one. But ultimately, this, and I was talking to you about this before we started recording, is just what's Philpott's goal out of this other than to like generate another bad cycle for Trudeau and maybe give him a black eye? It, it does accomplish that, but I'm not sure there is a grand strategy at work here. Because everything we've seen with Jody Wilson-Raybould suggests she's thinking things through, has a longer strategy, is really picking her statements precisely. Philpott might just be holding a grudge because why did she get kicked out of caucus again? For not wanting to go along with the prime minister and resigning, maybe? She said some mean things in a letter. So maybe she is spiteful and wants some revenge and this is a way to get it. It could also just be like a, hey, you know, I really don't think... I should have been kicked out. Here's why. Here's another reason why. So we'll have to see where that goes, if anywhere. It sounds like it's unlikely 
to really be picked up on, but stranger things have happened. Just a quick note that on Thursday after recording, Speaker Reagan did issue his ruling on Philpott's point of privilege. He said the authority of the Speaker is limited to the internal affairs of the House, its own proceedings. It does not extend to caucus matters. While caucuses may have some extraneous relationship to membership in the House, it remains just that. There's nothing to suggest that its proceedings constitute or relate a proceeding of the House. As a result, he says, caucuses are left alone with the authority to govern their internal operations. So he's dismissed her point of privilege, saying he's got no ability to enforce that, and it's really up to the caucus themselves to interpret the Reform Act and whether it applies to themselves, I guess. Philpott, of course, disputes that, but now she's left with no other avenues to complain. While we're talking about Philpott, it's worth mentioning most of her constituency association of the Liberal Party of Markham Stoufville has resigned, which is standard practice because most constituency associations are pretty loyal to the person they helped elect as opposed to the broader party. Yeah, but it, it doesn't bode well this close to an election that there's an entire riding association that needs to be rebuilt. And if Philpott decides to run as an independent there or for another party, those volunteers who now know the riding and know the voters there will probably go with her. So be people to watch and see what happens there. And the last thing I wanted to bring up on SNC is when Trudeau was giving his statement before the Daughters of the Vote event last week, this is when 338 young women were sitting in Parliament to represent the 100th anniversary of when women got the vote. He decided to comment on a number of things. I guess 50 women in that room slowly turned around while he was speaking as a sign of protest, and other women turned around, or maybe it was the same, or left the room when Shear spoke. But there was one part of Trudeau's speech that I think I missed, but now that I read it, really, I don't know, highlights some of the, like, or really puts the pin on some of the, like, biggest qualms I have with Trudeau. And he's sort of talking about the struggles he's had recently politically. He says, there are always going to be a range of perspectives that we need to listen to. But ultimately, diversity only works if there is trust. And with a team... When that trust gets broken, we have to figure out how to move forward. And that line, diversity only works if there is trust, kind of undercuts his whole, oh, we should have more women and people of color and indigenous people in my cabinet, but they have to get along with me. Like part of the point of having a diverse group of people is you get dis different perspectives who, like, sure, you need to be able to talk to each other. But yeah, if the, at the end of the day, it just becomes what, what the white dude at the head of the table wants the half happens the way it's going to go. It's not great and kind of undercuts the point. And he talks about trust a lot, and he's talked about this erosion of trust and other things repeatedly. But the thing that's been missing in this entire affair is when did Trudeau and the prime minister's office writ large trust the attorney general herself to make that decision on SNC or not? Yeah, there's kind of an expectation that's a one-way street here. Yeah. I'll leave it there just as a way to cap off the whole... SNC affair. And I don't know, hopefully we don't have to talk about it next week, but I'm sure it'll come up again in some way. Trudeau will find a way to keep the scandal alive somehow. And we find a negative relationship between voter turnout and exposure to fake news. This debate will, I strongly believe, serve as a showcase for the virtues of civil discourse. Well, moving on to segment two, social media is bad. Next up, we have some interviews with the panelists of an SFU Public Square debate on social media and whether social media is destroying democracy. Welcome to Politicoast. The entire panel of the Is Social Media Destroying Democracy debate put on by the SFU Public Square and the BC Society for Civil Discourse. No, it's something like that. Arguing against that resolution, do you want to introduce yourself and why you thought social media, just very like the summary of why social media isn't the worst thing in the world? Uh, my name is Francesca Fionda. I'm a journalist with an independent organization called The Discourse, which is a community-driven journalism organization where we actually use social media to figure out what to cover next. So we're using it in ways that we think help promote democracy and that we have freedom of the press, freedom of opinion, freedom of belief. And that was one of the main arguments that we made tonight is that uh, social media is a way that many people participate in a democracy. 
I'll pass it on to my uh, partner on the right. I am Nesma Ahmed, uh, director of Digital Justice Lab. Social media is not destroying democracy because it keeps me up to date with pop culture because I need to uh, exist in this universe right now. So that was part of the motion. And on the four side, we'll ask them to introduce themselves and give a brief statement on why they think social media is terrible. Uh, this is Colin Bennett. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Victoria, and I work on privacy and surveillance issues. I don't think social media is terrible. Um, I don't think it's destroying the world. I just think it's not very nice for democracy, I guess. And the reason I'm saying that, the reason I'm arguing that, is, that, is because it's based inherently on a principle that people need to be monitored and surveyed in order that the social media companies can make money and uh, that's the bargain that people have struck with social media and uh, it's inherently anti-democratic. Hello again, David Mosscrop, friend of the show, nice to be back as always. Uh, I'll start by saying this, the first podcast I ever recorded was with you guys at the Vancouver Public Library, right here in that booth. So, it's nice that we come full circle. Uh, I was arguing for the affirmative because you know, my definition of democracy is inclusive, participatory, deliberative, which requires you to have good information and to be able to develop reasons for and against your preferences uh, and the preferences of others. And social media undermines that by poisoning the information environment and serving as effectively an opportunistic infection to undermine the entire Western democratic project, which was already in trouble, you know, prior to all of that in the first place. So, although I should say we got modestly creamed, I think, so ge- you know, gently crushed. <laughs> it was interesting, the entire debate. I won't spoil who won and who lost as they counted it here yet. People will get to hear the full debate on this podcast feed probably early next week when we managed to get that edited lightly and put online and people can hear the full arguments there. But one thing I really took away was kind of the common ground between all of you. And before I say what I think the common ground is, does anyone want to sort of venture what they saw as a like common theme where maybe you did find agreement? One of the things that I think we agreed was that there is a sheer volume of information that people are still trying to figure out how to digest, that there is misinformation out there. And I think we I think we also agreed that regulation is a thing that needs to happen. I think we said that, but at least we all agreed that we're still in the process. And right now we are uncertain about what that future is. Yeah, I mean, I, I very much agree with that. I mean, I, I agreed with a lot of it. And I certainly agree with the connectivity argument and the empowerment of of marginalized folks. I mean, I think that is crucial to the social media space as well as accountability. I mean, I remain concerned that that gets shouted down and tamped down by by powerful powers, uh, but the connectivity is powerful. I, I don't think I would have able, even myself, got to where I am now as a professional, or certainly not as quickly or as well without social media. I mean, it served me very well. And it's connected me to people like folks in this room and people listening, right? I mean, I've made all kinds of connections and relationships that I would have never made without social media, which is great. I mean, I still think it is a huge problem, but it's, it's, there are inherent goods to it. Uh, so I've got a couple questions kind of more diving into what was uh, said and some themes that were uh, discussed. David and Colin, um, one of the things that was highlighted in your side's speeches was uh there's a lot of issues with how social media is run and like the company structure and uh the incentives they're facing do you think this is a problem that's inherent to social media or is it more of a business model problem as in in other words is social media reformable yeah it's i mean it depends very much on what you mean by social media i mean there's so many different social media social networking companies no it's a business model problem and and it's emerged without it's just just barged into our democratic space you know just facebook google and the others just came in and and then then everybody started using it and without sufficient debate or understanding and certainly political debate and understanding of what was happening and then you wake up and smell the coffee cambridge analytica oh my god you know uh, politicians suddenly thinking oh Wait, wait a minute, I could lose my seat from this social media, from this foreign, foreign, foreign interference. And so we're now trying to catch up. And to your point about does it have to be this way, no. Um, but uh, we do need our regulators to 
one, I think, get very, very seriously about, let's think very, very seriously about the monopoly situations, uh, both in the United States and worldwide, and two, enforce the privacy properly, because uh, if you can get to the point where these companies are only capturing personal data with people's knowledge and consent, that really does undermine existing advertising model, and the fines will kick in, and they will hurt, um, and they will hurt, you know, where it counts. I think it's also important to note that people knew this was gonna, this was coming, but not to this extent, right? I think scholars were sharing very quickly the issues that were popping up. Activists were sharing the fact that, for example, misinformation campaigns were happening through WhatsApp. Like it was something that was bubbling through, right? Myanmar um, is a, one of the key examples of that, where Facebook just never listened for quite some time, um, and so I think that it's. It was bubbling for quite some time until, obviously, I think Cambridge Analytica was the moment that everyone was like, wait a second, we need to watch this, right? At that point, right, it was already, like, Facebook was a big data machine that it is, right? And so I think that we're doing a lot of backpedaling, unfortunately, right now, right, trying to catch up. Um, I think that we're in this point right now where we're mitigating a lot of the issues, which makes it hard for us to even imagine what would be possible for a more democratic social media platform. So how is it possible? possible to have a democratic platform with 1.5 billion people that are active on it every day. I have no idea, right? And so I think that's the difficulties that come with these conversations is, yeah, we're in mitigation right now and we're all racing to figure out how we can regulate, um, which makes it hard for us to also imagine what's possible even two, three, five years from now and what we actually want to see, which is privacy, right? We want to be able to have meaningful consent, whatever that looks like, right? Because that also shifts. Um, and we want to not just be data machines, right? And I think that is a bigger conversation as a societal conversation that I think we can all agree on needs to happen now, especially as it impacts our society, our behavior, our work, our school life, everything. I picked that up through the threads of the debate. I sort of teased, I found these lines of agreement and I think that's sort of it. You all recognize there are deep problems with the status quo. But you also are all like very passionate about democracy and the ability of people when in the right circumstances to make good decisions, as David would say, or, you know, get people to speak up, form, you know, Black Lives Matter. I think Colin's almost the odd one out as the more technophobic is probably a pejorative way to say it, but more technoskeptical. Uh, do you think I see you nodding? So maybe do you want to speak to that aspect? Like why do you? You seemed more cynical, whereas, like, we see David is on Twitter all of the time. I think he lives there. I think he's on the Twitter right now. You both use social media a lot, both for your work, inspiring others. You mentioned you're not on Facebook officially, even though it has your data. You are on Twitter, but not in a very big presence. Is that just a generational thing, or you also mentioned the privacy aspects? Like, what is there? Can I note also, being a surveillance studies space, how can you be on these platforms? It's oh, hard. Um, no, it's not. It's not that. I mean, I, I I think it is a generational thing, and I think that part of the issue is that you know I sort of established a, a kind of a profile in this area before social media came along, right? So it's it's less useful, right? Because I have a you know there's a publication record there, and you know I'm sort of in literature, and students can find me in other ways. So it's it's less functional from that point of view. No, but I'm just no good at technology. That's the reason. I mean, you know, I've just tried to check my email, and it didn't. I got an account error. You know, it just just it just bothers me. It bugs me. It just it doesn't work. That's part of the problem. A lot of it doesn't work. I spend a lot, of, a lot of my time figuring out how this bloody stuff works, how to get my password in the right place, you know? And, and, and there's so much effort spent on trying to figure out, you know, how to actually make it functional. And I, don't, I just, you know, so I give up sometimes. <laughs> I think, no, I go, I'll go and read a book. I'll, I'll just, you know, books are a lot easier. Just open them. Uh, well, one of the themes that I think uh, came through quite a bit on the, uh, the anti-side of this was the democratization of information. And that's one thing social media has really done is kind of got rid of the gatekeepers kind of in the media space. And uh, that has its pros and cons. I mean, obviously in the past, it uh, kept a lot of marginalized people excluded uh, from public participation, but it also kept the anti-vatsers, the flat earths at bay and kept them maybe a higher quality of discourse in some ways. Uh, how do you see kind of going forward we should balance those two concerns 
And is there a role for gatekeep, or for lack of a better term, gatekeepers in the social media age? I'm wondering who would the gatekeepers be? Because I actually think that we do have gatekeepers even right now. I think that there are still, you know, I'd call, you know, pundits or whatever you'd like to call them, but people that do have massive platforms that um, are like people's single source news, right? If this person says it, then it is absolutely truth. And that's how you move forward. And that's throughout the, the spectrum from right to left, right? And so I think, I think, yeah, I don't necessarily think we need gatekeepers per se. Um, I think it, it can be extremely problematic and we're seeing that on all sides. But I do think that there is a need for fine balance of uh, how we fact check ourselves. Like even I get stooped sometimes. I have to constantly like double check. Um, obviously, I know people that I... I know certain people share things that I for sure will not look at because I know for a fact that they did not look at their sources prior to posting it. And I think we all have friends like that, that you're like, that's definitely not real. Um, and so I I think that it's having better fact-checking mechanism. It's a little bit harder, obviously, now with the ways in which, for example, websites are built and it's harder to see what's real and what's not. And so I think it's, uh, it's going to be more important for us to be a little bit... Um, more strategic, but it's also hard because it kind of feels like we're not, I feel like we're living in a reality show all the time. So like, even if the article looks fake, in many cases, you're like, that could happen. We did have the Ikea monkey. Like that was an actual real thing that did happen. And so like, it's one of those weird spaces that we exist in right now where, you know, even if you try to like parse through what's fake and not fake, I feel like we're living in a joke a good chunk of the time. So... I don't know. It's a hard one. Uh, And to to speak to this idea of gatekeepers, uh, I think journalists are trying to figure out how to use social media. And traditionally, it's been a very top-down approach in terms of how stories are picked. A journalist and their editorial staff look at something like, oh, you think I think this should be covered, and you cover it, and you spend time trying to find the person that's going to say the thing that you had all in your head. Um, And so it's about journalists figuring out how to use social media to engage people in that editorial process. And so uh, where where we work, we've been getting people to vote on what to cover next. And the vote doesn't mean that we have to cover that thing. The vote is... the things that we use to tabulate that voter are taken through interviews with people on the ground and then we use that to guide our editorial process. One of my favorite stories of how Twitter has been used in journalism is David Fahrenholt when he was looking at where Trump's um, donation money was going and he used Twitter to ask all his followers to help him find this portrait of Trump and where did it go and it was through this massive Twitter search where people were engaged with the fact-checking process. He was publishing his notes as he went along the way and they found this portrait you know hanging in one of Trump's um, I think it was a golf course or something where basically you know giving uh, transparency to the process but also um, involving people in in journalism which I thought was really cool I mean I think there should be gatekeepers uh, in part because if you can to some extent check the quality of information at that point then you have to do less work checking it at a later point. And it's less work for individuals to have to do if you can do it at the, let's say, the point of of publishing. Now, that's hard to do now because the toothpaste is out of the tube. But I could imagine a world in which there were more gatekeepers, but that gatekeeping space was deeply pluralistic or deeply pluralist. So, you know, the question of, of who the gatekeepers are... If it's a if it's a bunch of old white newsies, that's a problem. It was a problem 50 years ago. It's a problem today, and it would be a problem tomorrow. If you could pluralize that space, not just you know newsrooms should be diverse, but also there should be a diversity of media types. Well, then you can imagine a gatekeeping model that's actually pretty productive and representative of communities. Uh, but I don't know how you do that anymore because it's hard to stop someone from from spreading nonsense. And the question is, do you want platforms or governments um, censoring people by taking down nonsense? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, right? I mean, the hate speech, yes. Uh, incitation to violence, yes. But bullshit? I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know. I don't know that the cure is, is worse than or is better than the disease. So I'm very cognizant of the time and the fact it's late and we're all thirsty probably for some kind of refreshment or I'm gonna, not. I'm going to drink six beers. But just to finish off, 
this was a great discussion tonight because it was one of those debates where I think we didn't all like go in with our preconceived notions and like you just yelled at each other for 90 minutes and then left as entrenched as you are. So what's just like very quickly one thing you've learned from the other side or picked up or you just are thinking about leaving today, even if it's not from your opponents or just me. Stephen Quinn's quips in the middle of it. Well, since I'm holding the microphone, I'll say really quickly that um, learning more about the process from the discourse was wildly informative and, and encouraging. Um, so that to me is going to stick out, I think, going forward as, as it makes me hopeful when I hear that stuff. But, you know, the problem is we need more of that stuff and needs to be more prominent. I think um, like really reflecting on the question of 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 who is going to be in charge or who is going to be making those decisions about regulation and what information gets spread is, is, is an alarming question that we don't have an answer to. And um, yeah, I think it, it, I, I have no idea even how to start thinking about that. I think what I've appreciated in this conversation just really quickly is that, yeah, we were coming from completely different sides and we try to create space where there is actually commonality in many cases. Um, and I think it provides the complexities and nuance of uh, something like this and of the beast that is social media. And so I think that there's a lot to be learned. And, you know, I think how we think through surveillance um, is a constant conversation and the risk matrix that we're existing, you know, as individuals, but also collectively is a big conversation moving forward. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the motion encouraged, I mean, is social media destroying democracy? It was a pretty high bar to kind of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> destruction is apocalyptic, isn't it? It's undermining it, I would say, in, many, in some respects, but it, what it forces us to do, I think, is to think, one, what we mean by democracy, and there are elements of just some, but also to think about, oh, yeah, because there really is no consensus. Okay, thank you for joining us. Moving on to quick takes, I want to talk about Alberta because, as you mentioned off the top, we're going to have this patron-only event that people should definitely become patrons for so that they get the details of, and the election's coming up on Tuesday, and we haven't really talked about the Alberta election at all. Not really since the writ dropped. It's worth listening to the Dave Berta podcast, friends of the show. We haven't actually had them on, and we should connect at some point, but I've talked to them via Twitter, and they're good guys and cover the election pretty well. The election has been weird in Alberta. It's one that everyone expected from the start Jason Kennedy to win, and he's still pegged by all the polls to win, but by not as much. So right off the start, things started coming out about this kamikaze campaign, which essentially when Kenny was running for the leader of, I think it was Progressive Conservatives, there was another candidate. There was a couple other candidates. In that the would have been the UCP okay. because the yeah, yeah, kamikaze right. was kamikaze and Brian Jean, yes. the former Wild Rose leader. Yeah. So, yeah, what had happened is it's alleged that Kenny or Kenny's team set up kind of another candidate whose main goal was be there and just attack Brian Jean. I guess the idea being that then Kenny can just rise above it and these other guys are fighting down here on the ground, and Kenny is the lord and savior of the Conservative Party of Alberta. And as this scandal sort of slowly rolled out, the third candidate's under investigation from the RCMP, there was talk about potentially delaying the election to, like, let more dirt come out, but Notley pulled the trigger when she did. Well, it wouldn't be so much delay. Like, she called the election early, so it wouldn't be so much delay in it as let it be at its normal time. Alberta has a window when she can call it, and she called it within that window. They're but fixed like, delay. Start of the window. Yeah. It didn't. The, the election didn't have to be until May. Yeah. The other things that have started to come out is just extra irregularities in his leadership run. I think just today or yesterday, it started coming out that people are claiming, "Oh, I didn't actually vote, even though I had a membership, and it says I voted." And there's these irregularities. That seem natural on one hand, if you're being charitable for some for a race that was somewhat rushed, maybe, but maybe nefarious if you're someone who wants to spin a conspiracy that Kenny rammed this merger through and tried to get things over with as fast as he could so he could start challenging Rachel Notley. That's all kind of bubbling in the background, and no one knows what to do with that. Meanwhile, his slate of candidates is filled with everyone from... Lake of Fire version 2.0 preachers who talk about all the problems with the gays to people who have talked about white replacement and the replacement of white people in their homelands, which apparently includes North America. But she resigned as a cabinet or was as a candidate or was fired. Press Progress, the blog affiliated with 
the Broadband Institute, has listed over 30 candidates who have some toxic ties, which is not a good sign. Yeah, it's essentially been a series of bozo eruptions. And a lot of them are just old statement or statements been, pulled yeah. out from other things. It's not like they're saying these things during the campaign, but it doesn't look good. And I've heard a lot of rumblings from all sides of the spectrum in Alberta, or at least like the old PC types all the way to the other end on the left going, what is this party? Like when they talk about economics, everyone seems pretty happy and they're like, yeah, conservatives, they can steer the economy. And then he gets into social issues and things get a bit rockier because Alberta's not the province it used to be, at least on terms of social issues. So that's struggling for him. Despite all that, the NDP still can't pull this off, it seems. They're still down anywhere from 5 to 10 points in the polls, where they were 20. They're not really putting together a big, broad message about what they would continue to do with Alberta other than steady as she goes, which realistically is not bad. Yeah, Alberta doesn't have a lot of space to play here. Their economy is very tied to oil, which... Despite what Jason Kenney says, really there isn't much the provincial government can do to affect the discount that Alberta oil sells at versus the rest of the global oil market or raise just raise the price of global oil. Like Both of those are kind of not within the premier's power, so they more or less have to stick with a, well, we'll keep on going the way we're going and, well, look at that guy. Do you really want him running things? Well, one of the... Other parties in the race is the Alberta Liberal Party, one of the longest surviving parties in Alberta. And oh, Yeah, they have a Liberal Party there. They didn't run a full slate last election. I don't believe they're running a full slate this election, but they were in the debates, and their leader, David Kahn, bragged about how he's the only one on that stage who has actually laid pipe. And now they have a hashtag laying pipe hat for sale for some reason because they're just leaning into this joke. And then there's the Alberta Party, which is now run by Stephen Mandel, who was a former progressive conservative cabinet member and mayor of Edmonton. And their whole raison d'etre seems to be to be the liberal party with a better brand, like enlightened centrists of Alberta. They're floating around 6 to 7%, maybe a little bit more in the polls. They might get one or two seats. The liberals may get one. That could put them into a minority situation if the NDP does really well gets all the seats in Edmonton, gets half the seats in Calgary and a couple others elsewhere. Yeah, but there's that lingering question of, well, those former progressive conservatives who who are looking at Jason Kenney going, ugh, not sure about that. There is the question of where they will end up and the Alberta party might benefit. Maybe. One of the things I was thinking earlier today or yesterday was this is an election Christy Clark could have really run away with. Like if she was leader of the United Conservative Party... She'd lean into that economic message. She'd shut all of this social conservative garbage down. And she just talks jobs, jobs, jobs. And that's what Albertans want to hear. She's what they need. She'd basically be a renewed Alison Redford, but hopefully without the air of entitled Tory government. Yeah, actually, that's that's such a point. Yeah, Christy Clark would do very well in this election. That all said, the strong prediction... I have is still that it's going to be a Jason Kenney government. And I think Rachel Notley's holding on to keep the NDP at a competitive 40% where they can try and contest again in four years. And maybe she'll stick around for a second attempt. Do you think she'll uh, keep her job as leader if she loses? I don't think anyone in the like actual party of the Alberta NDP dislikes her. I know a lot of leftists in Alberta who don't like her because of how... She's sort of steered to the middle and tripled down on oil at every opportunity. Yeah, but you're never going to have a party from the left of center that doesn't steer to the middle in Alberta. No. So I think if she leaves, it will be of her own accord. Like she is a smart, talented politician and gets praise from across the aisle. So the only discontent is from the left and far left. And I don't think it's strong enough within the party itself to take her out. Jason Kenney, if he doesn't win, on the other hand, has given up his whole proposition that he's the savior. So his job is on the line, but he's got a better shot at it. I don't even know what happens to those other parties if they don't. What's their winning conditions? But Jason Kenney, if he does win, has said, which is relevant for BC, that his 
one of the things he'll do on day one is enact the turn off the taps bill that we talked about way last year in the wine war era stuff, unless BC drops all our opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. In other words, Alberta will suddenly cut off the flow of oil and gas to BC. So we will see gasoline price spikes beyond the $1.65 they are right now into the $1.70s, $1.80s, $2. And Kenny just wants to see us scream. I think the Beaverton headline was, Kenny promises to strangle every British Columbian until they give up opposition. <laughs> I have to say, uh, constitutional crisis on day one is a bold strategy. I commented this to Stuart Press on Twitter that I think Kenny's going for the same strategy as Doug Ford. That's the move fast and break things as soon as you get into office. Like he wants the big repeal bill to, I think he's talked about this idea of undoing every piece of legislation the NDP brought in over four years, which seems a bit much. Like even ideologically, there are things that like Stephen Harper's conservatives or the Christy Clark liberals did that I approve of. And I would never be like, let's just crush it all because it was them. Yeah, it would be a shame if the Public Prosecutions Act, just to name one at random, uh, from the Harper era got repealed. So I guess we'll see on Tuesday who the premier to the east is. God, Alberta to the east is always weird to think about. What are you talking about? Eastern Canada starts at Hope. Yeah. Well, moving back a little closer home here, the next German report, the first chapter of it was released earlier this week which it's a little odd to just release a single chapter. I guess the report is really big, several hundred pages, and contains potentially... Yeah, they do have to vet this yeah. because there's potential for ongoing criminal investigations, for example, to be compromised if the wrong bit of information's in there. And given criminal investigations have been compromised in this province by some sloppiness somewhere, I'm fine with them taking their time. Yes, but... Are there many criminal investigations into this? Because it turns out there aren't many RCMP officers working on this. There's none. Zero. It was shocking. At least to David Eby, the Attorney General, who used that as the justification for releasing this and put out there, like, they calculated the amount of spending the federal government was doing on RCMP investigations into money laundering and figured there should be X number across the country. But as they started to dig into those numbers, apparently half the positions were vacant or people were on leave or holidays or things like that. And then out of the half a dozen who were left who were actively working, none are stationed in BC. And Peter German, who himself has worked on these size investigations, points out that they're not simple. And so even having one or two wouldn't be sufficient. You need a team here to be dealing with money laundering. And remember, we're talking about billions of dollars moving through real estate, casinos, fancy cars and everything else. Yeah, in terms of the officers that are there, mostly there to forward stuff to the province's civil asset forfeiture office, which is a questionable program, as our episode a few weeks back went into. Yeah, so rather than try to arrest anyone, they're just taking their stuff, which I guess funnels money into the province and sustains itself, but doesn't actually solve the problem of the money launderers. Also, the... We don't have to prove criminal charges. Maybe shouldn't be considered a feature. Yeah. For police taking your stuff. Yeah. It's e- even if it is money laundering. Sort of assuming they're money launderers and everything you've collected. So that's where we're already starting to be a bit worried. The entire report, as well as a report from the fi- Ministry of Finance, looking at some of the financial loopholes that may exist, are apparently on their way to the cabinet and premier for a discussion, which includes quote, a decision about a public inquiry. And this was posted on David Eby's Facebook as well as Bowen Ma retweeting it with some fire emojis, as she's wont to do, which sounds like we're going to get possibly a public inquiry into money laundering, which is something a lot of people and civil society groups have been calling for for months, year now. Good. Money laundering's bad. We shouldn't have it. And we should get to the bottom of why it's happening. Yeah. I mean, we've asked David Eby this on the pod, whether it would happen, and they always kind of hedge their bets, him and the rest of the government. They are expensive, they are slow, but I think one of the interesting facts I've learned about the Charbonneau inquiry in Quebec is that despite what it cost, it actually brought in, in terms of the like proceeds of crime it collected, the asset forfeiture or whatever regime they use there, 
more, like an order of magnitude more. So it was a profitable venture to look into money laundering. So with that, like, let's use this to raise some income to build some temporary modular homes or something. We can put them out in Maple Ridge where we can really piss off that asshole mayor. And for those who don't get the reference earlier today, this week, yeah, he uh, said that Maple Ridge is being, quote, raped and pillaged by the homeless people there, which is terrible. It's just a terrible thing to say. It was ironic those comments came out today because Andrew Wilkinson had a column in like the Maple Ridge newspaper defending the mayor and the right of the local community to decide whether or not to have temporary modular homes. And they were really trying to up that at the same time. Their comms team's not on their shit. Yeah, no, they, they, they could use a new comms team in the opposition leader's office. Although, this is sadly not the first time I've seen language like that used to describe housing. Yeah, the um, letters people send to Vancouver City Council on rezonings have some choice words, including those. There's one in Carisdale like, that almost had an identical quote in it. So yeah, people get weird when it comes to housing in a very nasty way. Indeed. Well, let's move from housing to realty. And a realtor has just been named the new leader of the BC Conservative Party, which is a thing still. Yeah, they've been out without one since 2016. They had like, like an official yeah. permanent leader. They've had a bunch of like interim leaders. Yeah. So Trevor Bolin is a realtor, like I mentioned. He's also a city councillor in Fort St. John up north. And now he's leader of the BC Conservatives. But you found something interesting digging through his Twitter profile. Well, okay. So I didn't actually find it. This was uh, shared around the majority of BC Facebook page. So credit to whoever there was the one who pulled it. But yeah, he forgot to do a social media purge before the big announcement. And a bunch of people screen capped his uh, Facebook comments talking about how great the BC Liberal Party is, that he was going to vote for Todd Stone for leader of the BC Liberals. And yeah, just a bit of amateur hour there. Like pe people occasionally change parties. Okay, fine. Maybe this is opportunistic on his part. Maybe legitimately has be now has beefs with the Liberal Party. But yeah, for a it's just a sloppy move. Well, I saw a couple of journalists pointing out that the BC Conservatives had not updated their website after announcing their new leader. They, they did get around to it like four or five hours later. Okay, that's not too bad, considering they probably have no staff. But yeah, Trevor Bolin, I don't think we'll expect to hear much from, but we do like to follow the BC Conservatives out of amusement. Moving on, uh, the BC government's announced that by the end of this year, all schools in the province will need to provide free menstrual products. This follows campaigning by United Way and a number of individuals and people. And one person who, I don't have her name in front of me, but I think she was just on the new Lady at the Ledge podcast, which is highly recommended. It's about women in the legislature. And we'll throw a link in the show notes to that. Basically, what had been discovered is that if you're a woman or girl in a school in BC and you go to the bathroom, there often aren't period products there. And so most schools had the policy that you would have to go to a principal or a teacher and ask for them. And sometimes you'd have to go to the male principal or a male teacher and say, hey, I'm bleeding down there. Can you give me a, some pads or a tampon so I can not be? That's... High school I mean, sucks. Yeah, hi normally. high school sucks. <laughs> Puberty can be a really awkward situation. And yeah, I could, I mean, I, I have no experience with that particular problem and None of us do, and that highlights the lack of diversity on the show. But I can imagine that would be a very uncomfortable, to say the least, experience. So this good. Yeah. The New West School District was the first one to announce that they were doing this. I think a few other lower mainland schools were starting to get on board. And the fact the province moved on this quickly is great. It sounds like this campaign really only kicked off in like January. So the fact someone went from hey, this is an issue, to the issue should be solved within, like, months is almost unheard of politically. And I think goes to show that it's just a common-sense solution. It's probably not going to cost that much. We require bathrooms to stock soap and toilet paper, so let's throw some pads and tampons in there for those who need them. Meanwhile, a not-common-sense policy at the federal government 
got buried in the budget bill that was introduced earlier this week. The Trudeau Liberals are still on the we don't do omnibus bills tact. Maybe they've given up that line, but they did talk a lot about that in the last election. But now their budget bills have become multi several hundred page documents of just unrelated policies. And the unrelated policy they're introducing this time are changes to Canada's asylum claim process. Specifically, they are going to prevent asylum seekers from making refugee claims in Canada if they've made one in similar circumstances in other countries, including the US. And this is supposedly a way to stem some of the irregular crossers who are going into Canada from the States. Yeah, so right now we have a what's known as the Safe Third Countries Agreement. Basically, it says that refugees need to apply for refugee status in kind of the first safe place they show up to, which means if you are a refugee who arrives in America, that's considered a safe place, you should apply for refugee status there rather than carrying on up to Canada and applying here. Yeah, the theory goes that they're roughly equivalent procedures, roughly equivalent in terms of safety, and that refugees shouldn't necessarily be kind of shopping around for the most ideal or most easiest system to apply for. Um, They should go kind of where they first show up. But there's kind of a breakdown in the system where that doesn't really apply if they don't actually cross at kind of a designated port of entry. So that's led to some what are known as regular border crossings between the states and Canada, where now once they're in Canada, they don't cross at the normal checkpoints, they can apply for refugee status here. So this is, I guess, a way to try and block that. It gets a bit dicier where if you get here and you're deemed that you can't make your asylum claim because they say, oh, you already made a claim in the U.S. and they rejected you. You can't just come here for and try again. The problem is Canada's not going to immediately deport you to your homeland, but you also can't apply for asylum status. Instead, you're going to get a pre-removal risk assessment to determine if it's safe to send you back to your country of origin. But essentially, this undermines individuals' rights to have their refugee claims heard by a tribunal or a court, which is something that's been pretty well established in Canadian jurisprudence, as far as I understand it. And so refugee lawyers are very pissed, and civil rights groups are very pissed, because this came out of nowhere and seems like not the welcome to Canada refugees image that Trudeau likes to display. Yeah, so the legislation's right now making its way through Parliament because the Budget Act hasn't been passed yet. But when it does, yeah, expect quite a few charter challenges. Finally, the Liberal government is taking a bit of heat for spending a bunch of taxpayer money to help the Loblaws grocery chain buy some new refrigerators. Earlier this week, Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, uh, announced that Loblaws was getting $12 million to install new energy-efficient refrigeration units. I love this paragraph from Global News where we're reading the story. That comes just a year and a half after the company fought against raising the minimum wage, admitted to a 14-year bread price-fixing scheme, and ended up in a tax court battle last year that saw it ordered to pay back taxes worth roughly $368 million relating to a banking subsidiary in the Caribbean. I think that encapsulates why people are like, why are we giving money to that place that price-fixed bread, fuck's sakes? Like, people are obviously pissed because it makes no sense, and it goes on to point out that the net earnings for Loblaws last year were $800 million, which you think they could find a spare $23 million to buy their own damn efficient fridges. So it's it's an energy-efficient fridge. It's going to save money in the long term. I mean, you can argue on climate policy that there's a role for subsidies, but is this necessarily the right subsidy in the right place? Like for me, this is just a, they have the money, just make them do it through regulation if that's a requirement. If we want them to have more efficient fridges to cut their emissions, say you must have more efficient fridges and make them do it. Or just raise the carbon tax some more. Do both. I mean, that, that's the other thing you can do to incentivize it. Because every dollar that thing goes up by, that's just more incentive to buy these. So we'll do both of those. And then we can spend the $12 million on the on whatever else we want, building wind farms. And we can spend the carbon tax money on... I don't know, subsidizing the people who can't afford to pay it or... Yeah, rebates, so they can help buy bread, I guess. Oh. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) people are not happy at Loblaws. They're not happy at the government because this is 
another seeming corporate bailout type thing. The liberals are it's corporate welfare, kind of. The liberals are defending it as a competitive process by which a number of companies were invited to submit climate change proposals, and this was just the winning one. But someone had to on that team be like Loblaws. That name's familiar. Have they been in the news recently? And looked up any of those stories and been like, this might look bad. And I'm not saying decisions about where funding go should be decided by political factors. That that'd be worse. But sometimes you don't want to give money to the companies that have been doing bad things. It's almost like rewarding bad behavior. Scrap the subsidy, do something different. It's bad policy. And that has been Politos. Find links to everything we talked about at politicos.ca. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com politicos. If you have ideas for the show, feel free to send them to us. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Shoshana Plotkoff. Thanks for listening.